everyone. Welcome back to the Mike Rosehart Show, live every Wednesday around seven o'clock. Today I just had a piece of paper and I ripped it up for the theme of today's video, which was talking about how to joint venture and how to joint venture partnership properly. So I wanna do, I wanna take this whole 30 minutes right now to talk about how do you structure joint venture partnerships, what makes a good joint venture? How do you select a good joint venture partner? Um, how do you select, you know, create that good partnership? And then I wanna talk a little bit about why I don't like joint venturing very much anymore. And it's an evolution, I think, in the toolbox of, you know, ways to take deals down. For me personally, right now, I've learned a lot having done 50 of these things. I've done over 50 joint venture partnerships and I've had some dissolve, I've had some where I've just walked away um, because of you know differences or whatever, because I didn't do a lot of the things that I'm gonna share with you today about how to select a good joint venture partner, how to determine if your goals and strategic visions are aligned, how do you prepare for when things don't go as planned because that happens, that's life, that it's a common thing. Uh, and then talk about some of the things that I've learned over the last couple of years because I started my real estate investing journey with no partners. People who know and follow my journey know that my first, geez, I don't know, dozen, more than dozen deals were done just by myself. I made most of my initial wealth from not partnering. So it's a new thing for me to start partnering the last couple of years. And I did it without having the experience. And so I'm hoping that the wisdom I've learned through failing can help you guys become better joint ventures. And if you don't want a joint venture, you can say, hey, maybe it's not for me. Maybe it's better I just have my joint venture partner be private money. Because in a lot of cases, that control and that, um, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Time savings, I guess is the word I would use, of not having to explain things to a partner, of not having that, can be a huge benefit depending on your personality, depending on the types of deals you're taking down. And we'll talk about that too, because short and long-term investing should have different ideal partners. And your partner could just be private money that you've borrowed, especially if you're doing flips, as an example it's probably not best to share in the equity with a partner when there's so much mystery, so much capital investment, so many unknowns going into a project like that, where there's a lot of data inputs. It's hard to have a good joint venture partnership of passive active. We'll talk about all that, like how do you structure it? Because some people do some wonky and weird and wonderful JVs, and I've done a little bit of everything. I've done joint venture partnerships where I've worked for free. In fact, that's how I got into joint venture partnerships. I had a friend, I had two friends reach out and they were looking to unlock financial independence for themselves. And so this is sort of my story of how I got involved in joint venture partnerships because up until, geez, I, 2017, yeah, I guess 2017 would be my first ever joint venture, maybe 2018, I have to go back and check. But in that 2017, 2018 period, uh, I was sort of already retired. I'd already quit my job. I was financially independent. I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, I'm at a point where I don't need to do any more deals. You know, I'll probably do the couple deals here or there, you know, maybe a deal or two a year just to, to keep fresh, just to do something that I enjoy and that I'm good at. Um, but I had no interest in, in partnering with people. I had grown up with seeing things fail. Like my parents got divorced when I was like six months. Right? I mean, they weren't even married in the first place, but separated when I was like six months, right? And I watched my mom and my dad, my dad went through a few divorces, watched my mom go through separations, and business joint venture partnerships are a lot like marriages. They're business marriages in some senses, right? And so I've watched, and, and people that I had had around me had started businesses and failed, and I'd watched joint venture partnerships in business turn toxic and fail. And so I was always told, like my dad growing up would tell me that like, don't partner, if you can avoid partnering, don't. It's just, why share in the profit? Why share in the stress? Even if there's, you know, it's better to have all of a small pie than share a big pie. And so I just had that different mentality in my head. And Anyway, I went against, you know, what I had done growing up and I started joint venture partnering. And for those people who know and those people who have partnered with me, I did it to help people. I initially did it because I thought, They didn't know how to take down the deals. They didn't know how to find the right deals. They didn't know how to you know, renovate them. And initially I just started helping a friend on one of their projects and I was just doing it for free. And they're like, hey, well let me give you something, a percentage ownership for helping me. Like you're retired, but you still deserve some money for helping me out. And so my first joint venture partnerships, I did all of most of the work and most of the value add. And I took between 15 and 20% 
of profit, which is like a way cheap joint venture partnership structure, as in they got 80% and I got 20%. And it didn't really get bad for me making these bad joint venture decisions and, and setting them up with very poor structures. And eventually I got better at setting up the structures. But even then, unless you're willing to litigate, there's not much you can even do. Like I've had partnerships where I concretely own 50% of the property, but I'm not on title. I wasn't smart enough to get control. And for me to litigate, to, to try to get any sort of compensation will waste so much time and so much money and so much stress that I just walked away. I'm like, you know, let's say my half of property equity is worth $80,000. It's worth it for me to walk away and try to litigate that joint venture contract because I was not on title and I had no control and I was not secured. So there's a lot of things that I learned doing this and, and doing so many. You guys know in 2019, I went 2018 and 2019, I went very, very hard and we did 50 properties in a year. We bought way too much too fast and we hired some bad property management companies that you know we had to, had to let go on a couple of properties and some of the properties they're still managing, but that's a story for another day. My point being, you will run into hiccups along the way. You run into scaling issues, you run into personnel issues, you'll have bad contractors that'll screw you. And as the active joint venture partner, it'll all fall on you. If a contractor screws you, your joint venture partner is going to blame you if you're the active partner, even if it's not your fault. There's a level of risk there. And I think that that's another piece we're gonna talk about in a bit. And I hope people bring these questions up. I hope that people based on you know posts I've made in the past have thought about, and I know it's been a lot of demand for this exact episode here. So for the people who are diehards who are looking for this episode, hopefully they'll watch the replay. And if you're watching the replay, hit the like button and jump in the comments. And if you're watching live right now, jump in the comments and ask me any questions you want about how to structure control, how to write up your contract. Um, definitely don't do a handshake agreement. That's a mistake, especially with family. I've gone down that road with family and don't join venture partner with family. That's a mistake. Um, I ended up not having very clear, um, I guess, direction for who was fronting what from a financial perspective. And I ended up dumping in four times the money of my other partner and we split profit 50-50. So things were very muddy and not fair. And had we had at the outset contingency plans in place, like if renovation budget goes from 30,000 to 100,000 because of unforeseen or change of scope, um, what, what now? Who has to front that, right? And so there's a lot of things that can come up when you're starting a business of buying properties or you're joint venturing together and buying a property together. And I would say that it, it can be very toxic for family relationships. So even if there's profit, and, and by the way, on all of my joint venture partnerships, every single one, no one has lost money. And yet I've still had these problems where I've had greedy people uh, want me to walk away and they want to keep the whole profit. I've had people try to screw me out of my, my portion as well. I've had other people who are great. I've had some joint venture partners who are fantastic. I still have a few joint venture partners who I would joint venture with again especially if goals align and both of us are looking to acquire something that fits um, both of our, our visions, I guess, for the future. There are partners that I've worked with that are fantastic and I didn't do a great job screening for partners. I took on partners who are money partners who were poorer than I was because I was trying to help them grow, right? And, and real estate is one of those businesses that is very capital intensive. And sometimes you'll find your joint venture partner might go through a divorce. Something could happen. What happens then? When, when their partner is claiming half of the JV and their partner wasn't even on the joint venture agreement. Let's talk about this, this sort of you know, wild scenarios that can pop up. All of that stuff, I, I've been through it all. I've had the divorce, I've had the joint venture partner, not that I'm divorced, but I've had a joint venture partner have that and they were on title. I did a lot of joint venturing where I wasn't in control, where I wasn't on title. Again, huge mistake. Um, so I wanna share all of that, all those failures and sort of just hopefully that will help people tonight who have, consider joint venturing, we're in the middle of a joint venture, we're gonna do more joint venture partnerships or buy property with someone else. Because whenever you buy a property with someone else, that's a joint venture partnership, whether you create agreement for it or not, whether you're on title or not, if you're exchanging some sort of services, uh, you'd be, you'd be uh, smart to craft a good agreement and to think through the worst case scenarios. That's the most important piece um, when you're when you're going into this is to say, what are the things that could go wrong? And then just having, and, and I think having flexible joint venture partners, hopefully you can figure out a solution. But the problem is once there's a major issue, it's too late to negotiate, right? And so yeah, just aligning goals and making sure that everything kind of fits. And I'll share some experiences where in some cases I've joint venture partnered and I, I always joint venture partnered 
with the intention to help the investor build wealth. It was not really, maybe in the end, there was a couple of deals that I did just for the fact of, I joint ventured in 2018 with a business partner. So he and I split our half. And it's a long story, but he ended up leaving. And so when someone wants out and the other parties want to stay in the joint venture partnership, what happens then? There's like, how do you structure that sort of thing? And especially when that person who wants to leave was the active person, then what do you, does the other two partners do? Now they have a property and someone has to carry all of the weight, all of the load, right? What, what happens in those scenarios? And so anyway, I got into some weird and, and terrible partnerships where my overall ownership in the property was sometimes 10 or 15%. And it wasn't even worth my time to be going out there and, and running this property. It was full of problems and you know all these kinds of things. But when you're dealing with tenants, you'll have some of the craziest stories. And so anyway, I've been through it all. And tonight I am, for the next you know, 20, 25 minutes, your wealth of knowledge to ask any questions you'd like about how to form a joint venture partnership um, or whether or not to. And in many cases, it makes more sense to raise money. I actually would prefer now more, most of my strategy today, and I'll do the occasional joint venture partnership where it makes sense, where I think that there's a win-win for everyone uh, and where it fits in with my goals. But by and large, it's way better to have full control where you are on title. You who are watching this video should get yourself on title. I know from a financing perspective, it limits the number of deals you can do, et cetera, and so forth. Fine. Open a corp, put that on title, even 1%. Put it on title of your joint venture partnership. If you're not going to do that, once they put the first first mortgage on it, go and secure a second mortgage on title. Even if it's for a thousand dollars or or whatever, register on title that you have an interest in this property. That is something smart to do. I've had joint venture partners in two occasions. Uh, one was a divorce where they sold the property from underneath me. They sold the property. I I talk to someone. I find out. I'm like I'm going over to the property to check on it. Oh, no, no, I'm the new owner of the property. Wait, what? I, I own half this property. No, 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 the property's already been sold to me and it was sold for pennies on the dollar. There's, there's almost no profit. It's like, whoa, 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 that shouldn't have happened. Our joint venture agreement clearly states that I have control of when it sells, but then you have to litigate that, right? So joint venture contracts are only worth the owner of the person you sign them with because trying to litigate that after the fact, after the deal's already closed, what do you do, right? Uh, and, and whoever has control of title controls when the property sells, can, they can do everything, right? And so that's where registering on title would have stopped that. If I had a second secured mortgage or if I was on title, I would have been required to sign off on that sale. Wasn't smart enough to do that. Thought a joint venture agreement was good enough. Just, that's another thing we'll, we'll get in. There's so many things. I go for hours about all the things that I've seen happen and the amount of hours that I've spent on the phone talking with joint venture partners. I've probably got 2,000 hours in the last two and a half years on the phone with joint venture partners and discussing strategies and trying to resolve issues. And that's a lot of time. I would much rather do one deal by myself than do, you know, a twice as profit, even if I made twice the money doing that same deal with a joint venture partner, because there's so much more time associated with it. And in most cases, you actually end up making less because you're splitting the equity with a partner. If you're the passive money partner, in many cases, and you're on title, because often the money partner goes on title, it's typically the way it's structured, because they can get the mortgage, right? And having that extra person on there sometimes hinders the ability. I clicked, that, I clicked on something else on my screen, sorry, and uh, completely lost the stream there. We're back. That was my fault. I clicked on something. It was a notification that came up. Uh, and I'm gonna get to all these questions. There's some great ones, and I see some people that are jumping on, and it's great to see them on. But yeah, just talking about some of the things that are really, really important around control, around and for most people, the goal of a joint venture is maximum profit. Uh, for me, originally, it was about just helping people. And if I made some money along the way, bonus. It eventually became so onerous and so stressful managing all of these joint venture partnership relationships that I was almost on the phone with a partner. Like I had, I'd have to guess, but like 20 something, 20 something joint venture partners, maybe more uh, at one point. We had a couple of properties with each one. And it was a pain. Some, some I had one property with, and it was a pain to have that you know, bi-weekly call with so many different investors. If I could do it again, I would have picked one or two shark or whale investors and worked exclusively with them and said, look, I need a seven-figure investment. I'm gonna recycle your capital. I'm gonna burr the project. I'm gonna refinance it. I'm gonna keep your capital moving. If we decide that we're gonna flip the property because you know the market conditions have improved, that's my call. And I would have had full control. I would have registered on title and worked with a couple of investors. That would have been the way that I would have done it in hindsight. I didn't do it that way. I joined ventured with 
friends, a joint venture with family, a joint venture with people that I shouldn't have joint ventured with who weren't at a financial stage or had the experience or knowledge to take the joint venture relationship where it needed to go. And so, and life happens. I don't carry any ill will. In many cases, I'm always looking for the most amicable solution without having to litigate. And so that meant in resolving, and by the way, this year has been the, the year of resolving joint venture partnerships. So I've been trying to get out of all the joint venture partnerships that I don't want to be in anymore. And that means selling properties off. You know, I'm putting lots of properties up for sale. We've probably sold off like a dozen of the joint venture partnerships. More than that this year have been, have been terminated. And that's been really good because I've not had to have too many conversations, but to do that and get to that point of resolving all these joint venture partnerships is like a year of full-time work. So just know once you get to fire, if you did it through joint venture partnership, you have another couple of years of unwinding all of that. And that's a lot of work. And so think about your goals, right? And, and say, and it, realize that if you get to a point of, you know, if your goal was to early retire or whatever it was, that joint venture partnering doesn't just end the day you decide. It's, it's years to unwind, especially with a lot of properties and, and things like that. So anyway, I'm just rambling at this point. I didn't structure any sort of presentation for you guys. So I'm just literally vomiting experience that I've had to go through over the last couple of years. And hopefully we can do some targeted questions now. So I'll go to the chat and then I might go back to rambling if there's no questions. Hey Ellie, how you doing? Future Wiz, good to see you on as well. Ishan says, hello Mike, good topic. One can only learn on this topic from experience. Well, I mean, there's probably a way to learn how to join venture properly. And I didn't take any courses or I just kind of muddied through it. I used some Google, um, I guess Google is my best friend. And I got some sample joint venture partnership agreements. I had a lawyer friend of mine send me one. So I had had good templates to work with. What I didn't realize is how hard it was to enforce joint venture partnerships and how easy it is for, and believe it or not, it's easy to get out of these things. You could argue that the active partner didn't try hard enough. You know, renovations went over budget, went over timeline. This stuff happens all the time in construction. Um, or if something, it's not even the joint venture part partner's fault happens, you know, some natural event like market, you know, is vacancies up 20% and the units can't be rented as an example, or something happens at the city. The city comes in and says, hey, uh, you can't rent this. There's a fire deficiency, six months to resolve this issue, whatever. And that stuff happens in real estate investing. Sometimes the city comes in and says, next three months, you can't rent this, do these 10 things, and then we'll let you rent your property out again. And when you do enough deals, you'll find that sort of stuff happens one in you know 25 properties. But all that kind of stuff that happens, create those are like road bumps or roadblocks. And it can be very, very challenging to navigate those without, I guess a, being on title is the biggest thing you can do to really control and ensure that you're you know staying on and, and that sort of thing. So, and another thing I realized too is that people are greedy. Um, and I didn't, I guess because myself personally, I'd be more willing to walk away with one fifth of the profit to avoid conflict, but people are happy to just roll over people for the sake of money. And it's, it's crazy. I, I didn't think people were like that. And that was naive of me. Um, it turns out people are very greedy and very selfish and they will for 10 or $20,000 more throw you out to the, to the wolves. People don't focus on relationships first. And I think that's a mistake. Um, so anyway, uh, Robin just sent a super chat. Thank you, Robin Dales. How are land transfer taxes calculated? Well, Robin, it depends on this is a little bit off topic, but uh, off the topic of joint venture partnership, but on the topic of real estate, uh, land transfer tax, you can Google right now, uh, land transfer tax calculator. And if you put in your city, if you're in Toronto, for instance, there's a double tax. So there's a municipal tax and a provincial tax. Land transfer tax is calculated on a scaling basis based on the size of the property. I know the chart in front of me, but it's something like, you know, 1% on the first uh, 250,000. And then after that, you pay one and a half percent of the value of the property. And that's 2% over a certain amount for like $2 million or something or a million dollar house, it becomes scaling. And so just like the tax system, there are brackets. And as the house, you know, value is higher and higher and higher, the rate of land transfer tax, it, it goes up. But basically you pay between one and 2%, a little bit more than 2% sometimes, it, depending on where you live. If you live in Toronto, it can be 4% of the value of the property and a tax, a flat tax, every time a property changes hands, the buyer has to pay it. Um, and so on a $500,000 property, it could be in Toronto upwards of $20,000 in tax that goes into your closing costs. That's a bummer. It sucks. It's a money grab by the government, but it is what it is. If it's a commercial property on the purchase, you will likely have to pay HST. Uh, talk to your accountant about that, but that's 13% tax. So on a $500,000 
partially commercial building or anything with commercial, then you could easily have 50, 60,000 in HST plus land transfer tax and they're 10, 20,000, depending on whether your city has municipal land transfer tax and the provincial land transfer tax. Luckily in London, Ontario, there's just the provincial land transfer tax and there's no municipal one. So we just pay the tax one time to the province. It's like less than 2% on an average deal. And so it's not a huge deal. Like on a $200,000 property, you're talking about four grand in land transfer tax, maybe another thousand or 1500 in legal fees, disbursements, et cetera, to close the house, that'll be your closing costs. So hopefully that answered your question, but there are tons of great calculators that you can use to calculate that amount for free on Google. Super chats get you first up on the chat. So that's just a, a pro tip. Trevor says, I'd want to control and not have to run things by someone. I get that it's good for capital infusion, but it seems like a lot of headache. Trevor, that's a great point. Um, control is so essential when you're buying properties that aren't turnkey. When you're buying properties where you need to make strategic changes, often you'll get into a project and you'll find, you know, you didn't know what was behind the walls. And all of a sudden now renovation budget goes from 50 to 80,000. And you know it's the right thing to do, but your partner's only signed up for 50 grand. And now it's a huge fight to get the extra money. Or what happens if a contractor walks off halfway through and you know runs his, his hammer against all the walls? This, this kind of stuff happens. I've had a contractor once extort us, uh, threatening to you know call the city and uh, bring them in and to tell them about fire code violations and all these types of things. And basically just extort us and say, hey, I want an extra $15,000 in this project. I know I agreed to one price, but too bad. I know where you live and I'll come smash your windows. And that's very common in the contracting business. There are so, so many cons in the contracting business. And it's the worst I find for the mid-level construction firm with like four or five employees. Those businesses are, are going bankrupt every year or two and they've got a new company or they open a company in their wives' names. This is very common in the industry, especially if you're looking on Kijiji or Facebook and you're not working through referrals. And sometimes even through referrals, you'll find that sort of thing. So the industry is plagued with that, with just bad contractors, especially if your goal is cost control. If you're willing to pay top dollar, you will get top quality contractors most of the time. But as you look to get those $20 an hour contractors, those $25 an hour contractors, those $30, $35 an hour general contractors, um, you will find that you will get reduced quality. They will not give you good reliability as in they won't come to the project all the time. They'll have six projects at once. I experienced this, had to fire them. Problem is they'll take, they'll get the next draw and then they'll disappear for a while, right? And so you'll have to make the hard decision to, to fire them, right? And the problem is, you're right, when you have a joint venture partner who's never done a real estate deal before, who's never managed a large six-figure $100,000 duplex conversion, let's say, or triplex conversion, they've never been through that, they don't understand that the city delays now, let's say a city inspector comes in and throws a bunch of stuff at you, and now you're eight weeks delayed, they don't understand that's not your fault. Like, you're performing at the best you can. And so that's where I think at the outset, setting really good expectations is important. I didn't do a good job of this with my JV partners. I assume people understood that construction projects have a level of risk, that investing in real estate is an equity investment that could produce really strong positive returns. And historically for me has, my portfolio has done very well, but there's a level of risk and you could go six, nine, 12 months on a huge renovation project that gets delayed by the city or whatever else with no cash flow. And I should have set expectations better and I should have added in my JV agreements, hey, if stuff goes wrong, you're in it for the long haul until we get to profitability. And if you give up halfway through, we're all screwed. You gotta put that kind of stuff in your joint venture partnerships, especially with flips. Anything where you're, well, there's a level of risk, right? And when you're renovating, you're adding extreme value, there's extreme risk. That's just the nature of real estate investing. You place a tenant, you take an extreme risk. Here in Ontario, it can take 10 months to evict a non-paying tenant. Any tenant at any time could stop paying and you're almost a year of no cash flow. That's a reality. That stuff happens. And when it happens, JV partners are like, hey, I thought I was getting cash flow every single month. What happened? Like, this isn't what I signed up for. And it's like, this is exactly what you signed up for. Rental properties carry a level of risk. There is no way for me to say, hey, I'm gonna give you a 50% return on your investment every single year with an equity lift when we buy it and guarantee you cash flow every single month. Like, you just can't do it. But people went to partnerships with rosy glasses on and rosy expectations. And reality is most joint venture partnerships, if done well and you buy smart, you'll make money. But it might not be money now. It might be money when you sell. It might be money in a year when you refinance, right? So there's a lot of levels of risk that go into joint venture partnering. And so that's something to think about. And I think that if had I not had any partners, had I just raised all the money and bought all the deals with private money, I would have had 
finished all the projects faster because I wouldn't have spent 2000 hours on the phone fighting with joint venture partners and trying to get money from them and trying to, you know, explain invoices and things like that. And just having general conversations and coaching conversations because I coached a lot of my joint venture partners towards financial independence. So I provided a level of service that I, honestly, I signed up for too much, to be honest. I tried to give the world to every joint venture partner and the result was there was just not enough of me to go around, right? Everyone wanted coaching calls with me. Everyone wanted to learn about financial independence and refinance their personal house. And I would help fix their personal financial situation and I would help them buy around properties. And we would try to be running a, basically a business with all these contractors and trying to manage them all. And admittedly, I failed at that. I hated it. And that's why we failed at it because I hated that my phone in 2019 rang 40 times a day. 40 times a day, minimum. I had 40 calls a day. And I had hundreds of texts from contractors and subcontractors and tenants and property managers once we brought property managers on and then just all the drama that the partners involving all that together. I learned really quick that having a lot of joint venture partners makes the web that much more difficult. And so that's the learning outcome here for today is that joint venture partnering, if you do it well and if you're smart about it, can be a great way to get into property investing and get into real estate investing, especially if you don't have capital. In my case, I actually had capital to invest, so I didn't need the partners. They needed me. And so that was where it became a little bit more difficult when it was so stressful, when I was dealing with those 40 or 50 calls, I felt like I'd been pulled out of early retirement to help everyone else. And the problem is people are ungrateful when you help them. Um, they just want more, everyone just always wants more. And so that's something I've learned too about helping people, you have to be careful. Um, saying yes too much. The more you say yes, the less freedom you have and the less you're able to give, you know, in the general picture. So that's just a learning piece for myself and something that I've kind of reflected on and learned about. Greetings, D. How to good to see you on. Finally able to sit down and enjoy the show. Good to hear. Cindy, hey. Sanam says the East seem to be the only affordable area left in London. Even that is on fire. Does that mean London can be gentrifying like areas in the GTA? Pricing low quality tenants out. Sanam, I think that there are still opportunities to rent, especially right now. A lot of the students who left because of COVID have apartments signed on one-year leases. So I'm seeing on Facebook Marketplace, people posting $1,000 a month bachelor apartments for 750. And you can take over the lease and they're happy to cover the difference. And I'm seeing weird sublet assignments. I'm seeing all sorts of crazy funky deals where landlords have vacant houses and they're just trying to get them rented. So in London, Ontario right now, market conditions for renting out property are not that good. Airbnb is at like 40% of what it was at the peak before COVID. So Airbnb down, bookings are down, travel is down, uh, rates per night are down, that's the data. Uh, average vacancy, time it takes to rent out units up, Signals you could look at as an example. Uh, apartment buildings in London used to never offer, in the last two years I hadn't seen it once, one month's free rent, two months free rent to rent a unit. All the time I'm seeing it now. The Cherry Hill Apartments, they got it posted, one month's free rent, two months free rent, because they're trying to get their units rented. There's no one to rent them. There was an exodus of students. We have 90,000 students in London, Ontario, 20% of our population, and half of them didn't come back. We had a lot of international immigration, way, way down right now. There's still immigration, but it's down. And international um, for Fanshawe College and for Western University, way down right now. And so that has negative implications. That's where, as an example, when things don't go to plan, I'm getting calls every week from a joint venture partner on a property. If it was just my own property, I would never get a call. I'd be like, I know the market's down. I'm gonna weather this for the next six months. Students will come back, things will be fine. But with a joint venture partner, you have that extra level of emotion to manage, that extra person to manage. It's just like, I look at every joint venture partner like an extra property. So instead of having 50 properties, it felt like I had 100. Uh, and I was getting the money of, I, I had, so some of my joint venture partnerships, I did like 40% of profit in some cases, and I split my half of 40% with my business partner who was helping me and he ended up leaving, but he was basically getting 20% for nothing towards the end. But I was getting 20% ownership of this property, he was getting 20%, I was doing all the work, and the other partner was getting 60%. And it just, it wasn't a good situation where I was managing all these properties, doing all this work for such a little amount of the pie. And that was where I was just trying to give back. But it's funny when you try to help someone and you give them a discount, they still want the premium service, which is, is crazy. Um, I guess this comes down to expectation setting. I'm not very, very good at doing that, I guess, in hindsight. I should have said at the outset, 
hey, there's a level of risk here. Um, and I, I think I said that, but maybe I should have just like stressed it more that like things can happen. COVID could happen as an example, and we might have a tenant that doesn't pay for a year. That happens in real estate investing. And I'm not able to just throw a tenant out. That's, it's not possible. Here in Ontario, there are tenants have rights and it's not possible to, to do that. But anyway, those are all things that I wished in hindsight I could have shared because joint venture partnering can be very profitable and the market's been overall pretty favorable. Uh, I would say that there's been some, right now there's opportunities for tenants to find places to rent cheap, but pre-COVID definitely tenants were getting priced out. Um, there was definitely opportunities, I think, for people to move outside of the city and, and have much cheaper rents, especially now actually with COVID, we're talking about people you know, telecommuting and being able to work from home. And so I think there's less of a desire to be in the, the downtown core. But let's talk about house prices. The government is printing money by artificially forcing interest rates down. And so what that means is house prices are rising more than they probably should based on economic indicators. Rents are down, vacancy rates are up. Real estate market should not be up 27% in London. It is on outside, outskirts of West London, it's up 27%. In East London, it's up, I think, 20% or so. East London still has affordable opportunities. I have a triplex hitting the market, one of the properties we're selling, um, hitting the market next week, early next week. And that triplex is almost 1% rule. It'll be hitting hit the market for around $400,000. And two of the units are, are vacant right now, which could be rented. And there's a unit on the main floor rented. And there's a garage that could be rented. And you could get almost 1% rule. Now, this is a property, you have to work hard at it. You have to go there and make sure the garbages are cleaned up after. And you have to go and rent the units out and manage all that. And they'll probably be in a triplex. You're going to have tenant uh, conflict at some point. It's going to happen, right? And that's all part of, in the early stages of a real estate investor's journey, you deal with all that bullcrap because the payday is worth it. At my stage in the investors, in the investing journey or the investor game, I don't wanna deal with that stuff anymore. And my property managers don't do a good enough job at dealing with it, and so it makes sense for me to just sell the property, take the equity, and private lend. I can make the same return. Let's say I have $100,000 in equity in that said property. I could take that and invest that at 15% and make $1,500 or more a month in private lending, a secured mortgage. Instead, I'm managing a property to make $1,500 and deal with all the stress. So in a lot of cases, it can make sense to sell and separate you know, all of the stress from the return. When you look at the baseline of doing nothing with private lending and you compare that to owning real estate, in some cases, it makes sense to just do the private lending. Now, there are situations where you get a higher return, but there's more stress in real estate. And so that's, if you're in the beginning of your journey, like I was you know, 10 years ago when I was just starting out, uh, it, it made sense to go through all that stress. And now I'm just, I don't wanna say I'm too rich for that, but I'm just tired of it. I just don't wanna do it anymore. And so yeah, if you're looking for deals, my deals are hitting the market, people are scoring them. We sold a single family house in East London for 245,000, it closes this week. It was a three plus one bed, one and a half bath. As an example, it sat on the MLS for four weeks until someone scooped it up. Like there are deals all the time, people just aren't looking. People are looking with their eyes closed. Um, so you just gotta know where to look, there, there are deals all the time. One man's, I guess, stressor could be another man or woman's opportunity. Okay, Cindy says, I heard these terms earlier today, subleasing and sandwich leasing. Can you explain them? So the idea, I believe what they're talking about, and there's many ways you can get really creative with how you sublease things. But the idea, I think that they're referencing here is you go and rent out a unit from a landlord and then you go and sublet that unit or you put that unit on Airbnb and you, or you put that unit out by the bedroom and say you go rent a four bedroom unit and then you go sublease the unit out with four different uh, tenants by the bedroom, you can make a profit. So let's say a four bedroom unit you could go rent right now on the market for $1,600 a month. Now you can go put those bedrooms on Kijiji or Facebook Marketplace for 500 bucks a bedroom, pretty standard in London, Ontario. So you're making four times 500, which is $2,000 a month. So you pay the landlord 1,600 and you'd be pocketing 2,000 a month in rent. So you're making a $400 a month profit. I think that's what they're referring to in the, uh, in, with, with that. Um, so those are basically like the re-rental strategy. I hear the term re-rental strategy. Uh, rent to rent, I hear that strategy too. Um, subleasing is another way people do it. It's technically illegal in Ontario. It's a gray area. Um, you're not supposed to be able to sublease without the landlord's approval, and you're not supposed to be able to sublease for more than the market rent. However, with Airbnb, it's a bit gray. So I haven't done a ton of this. I did it one time, 
and it was with a friend's property. They just didn't want to deal with anything. They wanted me to sublease everything and take the stress off for them. Their insurance company didn't let them do it by the bedroom. So they said, hey, I'll rent it to you and you, you take care of it for me. And so I did it as a favor um, and I made a little profit. It ended up not being worth the stress. The tenants left after a year and it was like, forget this. I, I tried doing it on the Airbnb thing too. It just wasn't worth it. Um, so at the end of the day, not something that I think is hugely profitable, but people do it and they make businesses out of it. So teach their own. D How To says, can you give me one example of a bad property manager? Did they overcharge you? D How To, yeah. So a bad property manager would be one, some telltale signs for me would be taking too long to rent units out. That'd be a, a big one. Not keeping up with maintenance requests. So you go talk to the tenants, you find out they've sent in like six complaints about an issue. In one situation we had a leak, like literally water was running through the drywall for two weeks. And they had received like six emails about it, not responded. And as a as an owner, you're liable for the negligence of the property manager. So it's your fault. The landlord tenant board would make the landlord pay a fine, not the property manager. But it's the property manager's fault for not responding to the issue fast enough. Um, lots of things like that would be examples of bad property management. And I've had like seven different types of property management companies. I've had like I prefer the small town guy as opposed to the big company. But the big company, they're very official with their statements, but they'll milk you on their, their fees. So I'll give you an example. The big companies, what they'll do is they'll they'll shoot out like, a, there'll be a leak and they'll send a guy by to go inspect it. 200 bucks, inspection fee, just to look at the leak. Not to fix anything, just 200 bucks right away. And then they'll send, you know, 150 bucks for a plumber to come out. Plumber come out and say, oh, it's just a caulking issue. So it's not my department. There's not, no plumbing issue. Then they'll send a handyman to come and caulk around the sink that, or the tub that needs re-caulking. And that's why it was leaking was because, and, and then in some cases, you'll find out it was just the tenant was showering with a shower curtain open. And it was really just a management issue the whole time. And now you get a bill for 200, you know, another 200, another 150. And it's just ridiculous. That kind of stuff happens all the time um, with the bigger property management companies and even some of the medium sized ones. It's very, very common. Uh, same with like the markup is just insane. They'll mark things up quite a lot to the point where a lot of property management, like any property management company with more than 100 units or 200 units, let's say, that I've met in London for the most part, there might be a couple exceptions. But that I've met, and I, I surveyed four of them, I looked at different invoices from four different property management companies in town. And they're like pretty decently known. You probably know them if I were to mention their names, but I don't want to slander anyone. Um, in all four cases, that property manager would ensure that you had no positive cash flow. So all of the units, and they're bragging they manage five, 600 units. I'm like, if this is the way that you conduct business with these few properties, and this is how you manage it, I guarantee the landlord has no cash flow on all those properties. So there's a lot of landlords out there who have ter like big property managers that are managing your property and they think they're getting cash flow. If they actually ran their numbers, they find out that their maintenance is like 400% of what it should be for the year. And same with their snow and their grass removal, or like their grass cutting and their snow removal and <clears throat> salting. And same with all the other things like placement fees and things. But other things that property managers do badly would be leaving units vacant for longer than they should. An owner, like if I had a unit on the seventh of the month, it was vacant. By the first of the month, I'd have it rented, guaranteed. I'd hustle my ass off to do it. But the property management company's got a $20 an hour or $18 an hour person working for them who just posts ads and goes home for the weekend and comes back to work nine to five Monday. They don't care the same way an owner does. And so they might not get it rented until the following month. So you're, you'll have, you might have two months of vacancy on a unit turnover because the property managers are bad. In London, Ontario, if your property manager has had a unit vacant for more than one month, they're shit. In London, Ontario, in anywhere in Ontario, this is like a decent city over 20,000 people, specifically London, Windsor, or Toronto. If you've had a unit vacant for more than one month and it's been posted, it's because the property manager didn't do proper marketing, proper good photos, proper number of showings. Something's wrong there and it's their fault. It's the property manager's fault. It shouldn't be vacant that long. Unless maybe the owner's being ridiculous and they've overpriced it or something. But like a reasonable property manager could get something rented in a month. And that's something that I think that people don't realize as investors that vacancy kills cash flow. So that's something to think about too uh, when you're looking at property managers. But we got off track. Let's go back to joint venture partnerships for a second. Back to the Q&A. Um, do you have a litmus test for determining if someone has enough character to be worth JVing? That's a tough one. Um, I don't know. I, I think that it's it's up to each individual person. So some people might prefer a JV partner who is really active and hands-on. And that might be what they're looking for. And some JV partners might be looking for that sounding board. And some JV partners might be looking for that person that never calls them ever and just accepts the results exactly as they are and doesn't give them any pressure. Uh, so there's varying degrees of what you might be looking for. And so 
it's hard to say there's like one test that works. I suppose one thing would be you could, you could run through hypothetical scenarios and even document those. Like if rental budget is double, how are you going to react? How are we going to deal with this? And you can see kind of how they are going to deal with this. And then if that happens, hey, you already had that conversation, right? So it'd be a little bit easier to have. Another thing is financial testing. I wish I did a better job of that, making sure that the investor had adequate capital to do enough deals or had adequate capital to fund the whole renovation, those types of things, and making sure they set aside enough capital for said uh, events. Because real estate investing, you need deep pockets, especially with major flips, buying old buildings, you know, trying to evict tenants too. You may be, and, and people thought like evicting tenants is, is something that is done quickly. If you are a property manager and ask them to turn over a building, as in like get all the tenants out, not all tenants are just gonna to wanna to leave willingly, right? And so you may not be able to get all the tenants out. Like they may, a tenant has a right to stay and if they wanna stay, you can offer them compensation to leave. That's within the property manager's rights, within your right as the owner. But to expect that a building can just turn over like, like that is, it's not rational, right? So making sure your partner is clear on the, on the expectations, I think. Because people get into real estate investing and they think that it's just like, easy money and you could just, you know, flip a unit and whatever. But sometimes you could have a unit that has a tenant that doesn't want to leave and it might cost you five years. They may take five years to leave. They may take $10,000 in compensation to find a new place. You may have to have another unit to offer them. If you're going to reno evict them, you need another place to offer them in some cases. And so, it's, yeah, it's just one of those things. I guess I don't really have a good answer for that one. Um, but it depends on your personality, I suppose, is the biggest thing. I got to go quicker here. My wife wants me to hurry up. Evening, William. Good to see you on. Uh, Cindy says, interesting you're talking about this because my sister and I want to be partners. Should I reconsider? Cindy, that depends. It could maybe go very well for you. Uh, I think that if things go, go bad or go sideways, family Christmas and Thanksgiving are going to be a little bit awkward. Uh, that's something that happened with, our, with my personal family, JVs, and I regretted it because of that. I, I knew I could have found an equally good joint venture partner that wasn't family, and I wouldn't have had those issues. Like when we went into an issue with the contractor, we had to let them go. And the contractor basically stole the materials and disappeared. And he had had, basically there was a bunch of issues that he had to fix, a bunch of deficiencies. So it cost us like an extra 10,000 or $20,000. Plus we had like another 10 weeks of delays. And so that, like two and a half months of delays is a long time. We were at the end of the project and it's around Christmas. And it was really awkward for everyone who was financially strapped going through that. Um, so I'm gonna try to do a couple more questions here. And if I missed any, just toss them in the comments after and I'll do my best to answer them. Uh, he wanted to go, I have a friend who's like a brother. He wanted to go buy a house with him to live in. I'd help him qualify for the mortgages and my financial backing like a co-signer. What do you think about this scenario? I think it's very important to document exactly how you want a profit split, exactly how you want to deal with each of the bills coming in, how do you want to handle profit, how do you want to handle mortgage pay down. If you're on title, you're not taking near as much risk, right? Because you're in control. It's the person who's not on title that's taking the risk. Basically, your friend is taking the risk. If they're bringing the down payment up or they're putting all their energy and effort in, they may be at risk because you're in control if you're on title, right? So that's something to think about how you structure it. And we'd have to get into some specifics, but one of the things would be making sure that you definitely thought through all the worst case scenarios that could happen here. And it could make sense, right? It could make really good sense for your friend to buy this property with you and you can make a ton of money. It's just, and, and one-off JVs aren't gonna ruin you. It's when you do a lot of really bad JVs or it's just the number that I did that I think made it so bad. One or two isn't bad, you can navigate those waters, but something to think about. Mike, you got a lot of experience working side by side with subs. How do you learn the building code and how long is it? Thank you. Um, William, I don't know the building code in and out, but in the times that I've had to deal with certain issues, I've had to look up specific instances of the Ontario building code. And so that's where I've become familiar. When it comes to secondary dwelling units or duplexes, I've sort of come through all of the major issues when it comes to smoke alarms or interconnected um, shutoffs for the furnaces or spring fire sprinklers or fire separations on walls and ceilings and STC sound ratings and things like that. Because I've had to do it so many times, I've learned those specific references. Uh, as an example, about amount of natural light you need and egress escapes and things like that. But it's just through experience. Most of the subcontractors I work with don't understand the Ontario Building Code. Like 90% don't have a very strong grasp on headroom issues or whatever else, right? Um, hey, Matt, I just wanted to thank you. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate it, Jordan. 
I am Mike, but I'll take the compliment nonetheless. Uh, just purchased my first duplex. Your channel was definitely a catalyst. Thank you, Jordan. Appreciate that. That was an awesome comment. And uh, definitely. <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought here. Um, maybe I'll see the question and remember what I was talking about. Maybe I won't. I think we're talking about contractors or something. Oh, yeah. Contractors and subtrades and the building code. And the thing is, it's your job as the overseer of the project to make sure that they're actually following the rules. As an example, my border and taper is in there taping. He doesn't know that he can't put an inch of mud on to level out a, a crooked ceiling, but in the process, making us below six, five headroom. I've had that happen where the, the trade's trying to get a perfect level line. And I'm like, this perfect level line right now in this old house will actually bring me below six, five and make it a legal unit. And so he has to go against his trade, which is trying to make it look as good as it can to allow us to have code issues. And so that's where like, uh, to comply to the code issues. So that's an example of where you need to go in and take the measuring tape and say, hey, I need six, five in this hallway, finish once the floors go down. And your sub trades aren't, your framer isn't worried about that. He'll just drop two by four on the thick side or he'll leave a gap under the ductwork because it's easier for him to frame it. But I gotta go back and I gotta push him to raise it up tight to the ducts in order to ensure we get the headroom clearance at finish. I have to think ahead, hey, once the, once the 5 8 drywall goes on top of the two by fours, once we put the floors in the subfloor, where will our where will our headroom be? And so I'm thinking ahead, hey, we need six, seven, so we're six, five plus finished. So those are types of things with the code that people just don't, um, in, the, in the trades, they just don't have a consideration for. And when they're paid job price or hourly, what do they care? If it's six, five or not, they're paid the same. So they have no incentive to care. The sub trades, it's not their property. They're not invested in the equity. They're not, it doesn't matter to them. And so just think, even the best of the sub trades don't have an alignment to your goal. So you have to come in there and make sure that they're in there to get in, get out and make their money. Or if they're hourly, they're there to dog it, take their time and milk the job and make some money. Uh, either way, their interests aren't aligned to yours. And so you as the property owner or the property manager need to be going in and making sure that the sub trades are meeting the goals for the project. And if you don't understand the fiber code or the building code, you wouldn't be able to do that effectively. And a lot of these subtrade guys don't have the experience. They haven't dealt with a bunch of, you know, rental properties and issues with fire code and et cetera and so forth. Okay, one more question. I'm gonna try to pick a good one. Uh, corp or LLC? Uh, it depends. For the most part, if you're doing a lot of metro partnerships, I would say corp. Uh, William says, we had to sue over title after putting money in. It really stinks. It does. Having to litigate, I only had to litigate once and it really sucks. I would never do it again. I, I'd rather walk away in many cases from my equity. Um, there was one time I did it and it was out of principle just because I didn't think it was fair or right. And I didn't care whether I got the money or not. I just wanted, I wanted to be what was fair and what was right. Hey Mike, hope you're doing good. Uh, done property development before is it something you would be considered doing again could you invest in real estate be a springboard into that area um yeah property development you need very deep pockets and it's a very long point until you get a good amount of positive return it can be a year or two or three where you're just in the burn rate right it's like a flip basically but with development it's a really long timeline so it could be five years to develop a piece of land right with all the tests and environmentals and whatever else that's involved to get you to that point where you can build on it and then eventually get it built Whereas the rental property, you can do a little renovation and your cash flow positive. So I think with development, it's a little trickier and there's a lot more unknowns. So that's why I didn't like um, the level of risk with planned development and the amount of stress associated with that unknown. Hey Mike, for six weeks straight, your live streams have been on, what's been on my mind? Going out this week to meet a potential JV partner. Keely, that's awesome. I'm hoping to hear that you figure out your goals are aligned and that you know, it makes sense. Um, and if it does, you should document everything and write a really good contract and put yourself on title if you can or register a mortgage against it. How do you force a partner in a joint venture to sell the property if both of you own the property? Do you have to? It's very, very difficult to do. Um, it's one of those things where if you had a shotgun clause in your agreement, that would be the best way to do it. I wish I had that on every one of my JVs. So if there was a problem where a, G a partner was like really pissed off and we're having conflict, I'd be like, hey, we set out in the agreement that I could buy you at $400,000 on this property. I'm gonna execute my shotgun clause. You're gonna buy me at a 400, I'm gonna buy you at a 400 right now, let's do it. And then whichever partner you can buy, the partner basically gets to do it, or you up the offer. And whoever you know can afford to do it basically buys the partners out. I wish I put that in at the outset, because that would've been really simple to say, hey, 
clean, like things aren't going well, okay, clean break, let's move on. Now that for me might be a little bit more easy than most JV partners because I can afford to buy the partner out, right? And so it's, maybe if you're just JV and you don't have any money, then you'd be in a position where even if the, you had a breakout clause, you couldn't even you couldn't even buy them out if you wanted to. They have to buy you out. And so then it becomes, yeah, a litigation nightmare. That's one of the problems with joint venture partnership is if they don't honor their word or what they've written in the contract, you gotta litigate about it. And that can be years and it's very hard to force. You can eventually, you know, if your agreements are done properly, you could eventually force a sale. Uh, my sister and I's goal is to own enough properties that cash flow to support my mom and dad. They're in their mid fifties. That's why we want to remember together. So I guess your goals are, are good. It's just whether or not you're, you're going to be a good combination together and whether it makes sense. Why not? I've always asked this, but you know, maybe one of the, one of the main reasons I thought it made sense with Dream your partner with some people is it's fun. Like I have a couple of Dream your partners and my mentees are a specific example of this where it's actually fun to join venture together. And I'd rather do two deals with the friend than one deal by myself. The profit's the same doing two properties with the JV partner and doing one by yourself. It's the same thing, right? Same amount of money at the end of the day, but this one's more fun sometimes, especially if you're both active and you're both working together to solve the goals. It can make sense. There you go. Partner ghosted you. Okay, I gotta go. Thank you all so much. Thank you for your time. Have a great evening. Thank you, appreciate that comment. What would you do in a real estate market like this? So Mr. MB, for your one and a half million, I'd probably just secure it to properties and do private lending. One and a half million should ge generate you like, I don't know, quick math, like $150,000 a month, something like that. No, $150,000 a year, minimum. 150,000 a year, sorry, my bad. 150K a year minimum. So that's a great return on 1.5 million and it's secured, you're pretty safe. Okay, everyone, I think I got all the questions. Thanks, if I missed your question, drop in the comments after the video and I'll be sure to respond and I'll see you on Instagram at my grocer. Bye everyone, have a happy Wednesday and I'll see you next week.